touched the cup in silence at the bowing of his head. Judas stole out silently and such the prayers were said. Breaking of the bread. I was standing in the shadows of the cool Gethsemane, trying hard to disbelieve what my weary eyes could clearly see. The lights, the cries, the flash of steel in the shadow of an outstretched tree. This I could not foresee I was standing in the shadows As the prisoner was led Trying not to tremble At the turning of his head Trying not to notice At the breaking of his heart Breaking off the dawn, I stood and watched the place where they laid his body down. But on the stone bed where they laid him dead, nobody could be found. Then a man in white, a dazzling sight, with a voice of triumph said, He is alive, he is alive.
touched the cup in silence at the bowing of his head. Judas stole out silently and such the prayers were said. And I warm welcome uh, to our service as we come to worship our Lord together. Uh, let me begin by reading some words uh, from First Peter, uh, chapter 1. Uh, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he is giving us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And tonight, as we look in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see again that Jesus Christ is risen indeed from the dead, and we're going to worship him as our risen Savior. And our first song speaks about that living hope we have uh, in Christ. Our first song is, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. Thank you. 
Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've just been singing of uh, some of the amazing truths of the Christian faith, of what Christ has achieved for us in his death and in his resurrection. Uh, and if Christ had not risen from the dead, we would have nothing at all to be singing about. Uh, and uh, Paul draws out that fact in 1 Corinthians 15, and Alan's going to read to us uh, from verse 12 of that chapter. One Corinthians fifteen verses twelve to thirty four the resurrection of the dead. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through the man, through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, 
Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. Dave's going to come now and lead us in a word of prayer. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we can have a sure and certain hope of new life of resurrection life because our Saviour Lord Jesus has been raised to life and he's now seated at your right hand at the right hand of God the Father Father we thank you that everything has been put under Christ's authority and so that we who have put our trust in him have nothing to fear in this life or the next Even in great trials and temptations, we can have great joy in knowing that our Saviour lives. We thank you for the miraculous account of the resurrection in Matthew's Gospel, of the violent earthquake and the appearance of the angel of the Lord who rolled away the stone and caused the gods to flee. And yet even this couldn't turn the hearts of the gods or the chief priests who still plotted, told lies and deceit to try and cover up the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus appeared to many, first to the women and then to the disciples, and makes himself known to us today through the preaching and studying of his word. Father, we pray for Steve this evening as he brings God's word, that it would be clear and powerful, convicting us of our sin and the need of a saviour, and that Saviour being Jesus Christ. We pray for ourselves as we listen to the preaching, that that we'd be open to what it is teaching us, that we would be like the women and the disciples and, and not like the gods or the priests. Father, as we rejoice in the resurrection this evening, we would also mourn with those who mourn, and we think of... Pat Salt's daughter, Joanne, and the family, and Jill Elliott and their family at this time as they mourn the loss of loved ones even this week. Lord, we pray that you would comfort them at this time. We thank you for Pat's life and, the ser- and her service and pray that her family would look to her saviour, Jesus, in the coming days. Father, we'd also continue to pray for members of our church who are going through illness and difficulties at this time. For Carol as as she continues with her treatment and John as he, he cares for her. 
for David Harvey as he starts his chemo this week and for Nancy supporting him. Lord, we continue to pray for the preaching of your gospel, both in this building and as it is shared. We think of Ian as he shared the gospel in Park Street recently, and we pray for those who have heard your word. Even this week, we pray that they would, be, they would respond to it and be saved for your glory. Amen.
Well, over the last number of weeks in Matthew's Gospel, we've been uh, effectively in the first uh, three verses of the song we've just been singing. Uh, and this evening we come to uh, verse 4, uh, the final verse, and the empty tomb. Uh, and I mentioned last time that Matthew uh, ends his Gospel here by providing us with eyewitness accounts uh, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we saw last time that his death and burial was witnessed, uh, and this week we see the resurrection is witnessed, and then next time uh, we see how all of us are to be that worldwide witness to these things. So let's read uh, the passage together. We're going to be Matthew 28, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 down to verse 15 as we look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of God. Uh, I think all of us have, as Christians uh, sometimes have doubts, don't we? Uh, if you have never had doubts as a Christian, uh, those times of doubt probably will come. 
Because the Christian life is a life that we are called to that is all-consuming. We are asked by Jesus to give our all to him, to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. He demands all of our resources. He demands everything we have to be given in worship to him. And if we would be investing in something that is not true, if we were to be giving our all to something that was a story, a fairy story or a myth, that would be a complete disaster, wouldn't it? Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. Everything, we, everything that we are as Christians would just be futile, be in vain, it'd be pointless, useless, if Christ was not risen from the dead. And sometimes we have our doubts because we think, is it really worth it? Is it worth really following Jesus Christ? Uh, we may have those doubts when we are suffering and wonder, why is God allowing this to happen? We may have those doubts when we see the prosperity and the happiness of non-Christians and their life seems totally great and they're not sacrificing their money, time and possessions and their heart, soul, mind and strength and they seem okay. Sometimes we may have doubts because we don't feel the presence of God and we wonder, is God even there? And sometimes we just get tired, we can't be bothered we get lazy, and so we doubt. And we think, is this life really worth it? Or should I just go and do something else? I think all Christians suffer that to various extents at various points in their lives. But everything changes when we look afresh again at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if he really has risen, which he has, and we're going to see that, then it changes everything, doesn't it? Because our suffering then, well, it has a purpose. And will end, if not in this life, in the life to come when we will be raised. The prosperity of the wicked when they seem really happy now, and when they are often really happy now, we realize is only temporary because life with God, with a risen Jesus, is eternal. When we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and we don't feel that God really is there, we can look at this and know for sure he's alive. And when we are focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it can turn our tiredness and our lethargy and our laziness into wonder and amazement that spurs us on to continue giving our all for him. And furthermore, this year, indeed this week as a church, we've seen a number of members pass away. We've been grieving over this year in so many ways. And so how marvelous it is that today we can look afresh at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if we grasp this, even in our sorrows, we can rejoice because Christ is risen. But this help with doubt and sorrow can only be really helpful if indeed Christ is risen. 
And Matthew here shows us that Christ really has risen from the dead. And so I've entitled this message, He is Risen Indeed, because that is what Matthew shows us. Up to this point, Jesus has definitely died. Uh, The Roman soldiers saw it. The women saw it. Joseph of Arimathea saw it as he, and he buried Jesus in his tomb. Even his enemies, the religious leaders, have seen Jesus die. And Jesus has definitely been buried. Those same groups saw him being placed in the tomb. And the tomb has been made, we left last week, as, or last time, as secure as the religious leaders could possibly make it. And in this account, we see that Jesus is definitely raised from the dead. And he's seen to be raised from the dead. Now, Matthew here doesn't focus so much uh, on the meaning of the resurrection, but rather on providing us with the historical facts of the resurrection. And it gives us assurance through witnesses that it actually happened And then on that historical truth, that's the foundation on which uh, the rest of the New Testament builds on the, the implications of that resurrection. But it's important for us to realize that Christ is really risen because otherwise those implications aren't implications at all. They're meaningless. The new life we receive, the the Holy Spirit coming, the assurance of life after death, our own resurrection that we're looking forward to, the certainty of the atonement being accepted by God, all of these things would not be true if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen in history, in reality. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. If Christ is not risen, you may as well go home now and not listen to a word that I am saying because it is useless. And because Christ is risen, even my preaching isn't useless if I'm preaching that Christ is risen from the dead. So what Matthew does is he provides us with the evidence Uh, And we see this in two parts in this passage. First of all, we're going to see what the true witnesses saw. What the true witnesses saw. And then secondly, we're going to see what the false witnesses said. So what the true witnesses saw and what the false witnesses said. So first of all, let's see what the, the true witnesses saw. And those witnesses are women whose eyewitness accounts have been tracked throughout the last, uh, few, uh, last chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, the one, uh, probably the one called the mother of James and Joseph, uh, went to the tomb. And verse 1 tells us it was after the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was a day when they couldn't go to the tomb, so they, they, they had to, to, to wait, but they got to the tomb as soon as they possibly could. Notice how, in verse 1, it was dawn on the first day of the week. These women had been waiting for the first opportunity that they possibly could get to the tomb. Why? Because Matthew says they want to have a look at the tomb. Now, Mark and Luke's accounts tell us that they also planned to put spices on the body of Jesus. 
And so whilst they went to look at the tomb, their expectation when they go to look at the tomb or in the tomb was that a body would be there. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they had seen placed in that very tomb uh, the, the day, a couple of days before. Perhaps they didn't expect the soldiers still to be there because on the third day they may expect that shift to be over and the soldiers to have left because the guards at the tomb were only supposed to be there until the third day. But in verse 2, we see this big shock. There is a, a violent earthquake which seems to have been caused by the angel because notice how the word uh, for comes after the violent earthquake. It says, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. So it seems that somehow the angel had caused this earthquake. And the earthquake signifies, just like at the cross, that this is a divine intervention. It's a divine intervention. Something going on here is from, from God. And verse 2 informs us that this angel rolled back the stone. And the angel is described in verse 3. We, 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 we get this description to show us uh, with these eyewitness accounts that this angel was an angel. It was not a human being. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes as white as snow. And so this description shows us that, that God's hand is in what is going on here. No human being was involved in raising Jesus from the dead. This is the mighty hand of God at work. And notice in verse 4 how the angel literally puts the fear of death into the guards. We read that they were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men, which is ironic because the guards were supposed to be guarding the dead body, and it's the guards who become like dead men and the dead body that raises and goes out. And in verse 5, the angel speaks and explains what's gone on. The women hear his voice telling them not to be afraid. And they would be afraid, wouldn't they? It would be a terrifying thing to see. The guards certainly are afraid. They shook. They were terrified, weren't they? And they fell like dead men. But to the women, he says, don't be afraid. He speaks words of, of comfort and assurance. Don't be afraid. I know why you are here. I know you've come to see Jesus. And the angel, notice this, it's important in verse 5, gives assurance that Jesus really did die. Notice that in verse 5. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Who was crucified? Jesus really died. The angel tells them, before they see what they see, I want to assure you, he really died. He was crucified. But the angel was not there just to provide special effects and show off uh, his superior strength in being able to move this stone. An angel is a messenger. That's what the word angel means. And the message is declared in verse 6. Notice the message. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now many of us have heard those words 
many, many times, haven't we? Perhaps they have lost their impact somewhat. But let us not lose the wonder of what's said in those words from the angel. Jesus, the man who was crucified, who really did die, is not in this tomb. He is risen from the dead. Just like he said he would. Don't let the familiarity of those words allow you to lose the wonder and the just awesomeness of what's happened here. He is risen, and it's amazing. Now, this is not something that is, is normal. If someone, uh, is, if someone comes to any of us and says that someone is risen from the dead, it is right that we are skeptical about the claim. And I think the women here would be perhaps skeptical about the claim. They've seen him die. They've seen him buried. And so the angel's message isn't just words. The angel's purpose is not just to say that he's risen, but to show that he's risen as well. So notice in verse 6, the angel says, Come and see. Come and see the place where he lay. She doesn't just, the angel doesn't just say he is risen. The angel shows he is risen by saying, Look, come and see the place where he lay. And the purpose of the angel rolling away the stone was not to let Jesus out of the tomb. The purpose of the angel rolling away the stone was to let the women into the tomb to see that the body wasn't there. We're not told how Jesus was raised, the mechanics of it, the exact moment that it happened. We are told instead that he was raised. And the empty tomb is exhibit A. The first thing that they really see of the evidence of the resurrection is that the tomb was empty. They had seen him die. They had seen him placed in the tomb. And now they see the stone rolled away for them so they could go into the tomb and look around the tomb and see that the body is not there. Well, after telling the women to come and see, in verse 7, they are then commanded to go and tell. They are to quickly tell his disciples that Jesus has risen and that he is going ahead of them into Galilee where the evidence will get even stronger because there they will see him. The empty tomb is not all that the women are left with. They are promised they will actually see Jesus himself alive. They were to tell the disciples quickly because they're going to have to get to Galilee, which is a good uh, 80 odd miles from Jerusalem, uh, and to see Jesus themselves. So go do this quickly so you can get to Galilee with the disciples and you'll see Jesus. And Jesus had told them that he would go ahead of them to Galilee in chapter 26. Uh, And verse 32, in his prediction, he said uh, that he would go ahead of them uh, into Galilee after he has risen from the dead. Now, it's interesting to note here how it was the disciples who needed to be told about the resurrection first. Before commissioning them to spread the gospel to the whole world, they needed to be convinced of this themselves. And brothers and sisters, don't we, as his disciples, 
need to be regularly reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We need to be reminded of this, to tell each other this. Because if we're not convinced that this is true, that this is real, then we're not going to be able to live for him ourselves. We've got to have people in our lives. We have to be a church where we are reminding each other and telling each other he is risen from the dead. We serve a king who is alive. And because the resurrection happened, we can remind each other of the benefits that the resurrection brings. Uh, I was playing uh, a squash game uh, very recently with a, a friend in the squash club I'm a part of. And we had a game in the morning and the person said to me, what are you, what are you doing uh, for the rest of the day? And I said to him on this particular day, uh, I'm doing some studying in the morning, but in the afternoon I'm going to visit somebody, uh, actually someone who's dying. And my friend asked me, what do you say to someone who's dying? What can you possibly say? And I said to them, it depends. It depends if they're a Christian or not a Christian. If they're a Christian, I tell them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I tell them he has risen from the dead. And I can tell this Christian about heaven coming. And all the, the wonders of heaven, because they can know that they're going there because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so what I do is I give them assurance that what they believe is true and that heaven is wonderful and it's waiting for them. But if they're not a Christian, I don't tell them all that much different in the sense that I tell them also, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but unless you believe in him and trust in him and have your faith in him, that, those benefits of that resurrection are not for you, but you will stand before him. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminding each other of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the only hope that we have for life and death. When I'm on my deathbed and any of you are able to visit me, tell me about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tell me he's risen. Remind me. That's what we need. That's what we need to hear when we uh, are suffering and struggling and all that goes with that. But also we need to be telling unbelievers the same thing. He is risen from the dead. And the consequences of that resurrection is that one day all will stand before him. And if you haven't put your faith in him, you'll stand before him as your judge. The resurrection of Jesus is most wonderful. He has gone ahead of us, not to Galilee, but to the new Jerusalem. And we will see him there. And we know it's true. Because he's really risen from the dead. It's the best news in the world for brothers and sisters who are sick and dying, for those who are considering giving up, for those who are depressed, for those who need encouragement to step up and live for Jesus and stop being lazy and all those other things. For whatever circumstances we find ourselves in as disciples of Jesus, we need to hear 
He's risen from the dead. He has gone ahead of you into the new Jerusalem, and you will see him there. Let's talk to one another about these things, because we need to hear it. Well, in verse 8, the women run off with both fear and joy to tell the disciples. I think you can understand their reaction. Uh, It's wonderful to think that Jesus is alive, but what they had experienced was also terrifying. And I think as uh, this should often be the experience of the Christian. Our God is mighty and powerful, uh, rightly to be feared, but a God also who brings us great joy as he uses his mighty power to bring us true and everlasting life. But as they're on the way, something amazing happens. If exhibit A is the empty tomb, exhibit B is that Jesus is seen alive. Notice that in verse, uh, verse 9. Suddenly, Jesus met them. So Jesus comes to them himself, and he greets them. He shows himself alive. The women don't have to go looking for him and wondering where he is. Jesus comes to them, and they see him with their eyes. Jesus is alive. And for us too, Jesus comes to meet us. Not physically like this, but in the pages of Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus reveals to us he is alive. He greets us. He welcomes us. We can see him, that he has risen from the dead. But Jesus isn't only seen. Another piece of evidence is that Jesus is touched. Notice in verse 9 what the women do when they see Jesus. They come to him, and I love these uh, three little words, clasped his feet. Now, why, does, why, why, why is that little detail important? It's important because you can't clasp the feet of a ghost. I haven't tried, but I'm pretty certain you can't. Or any other kind of apparition. The clasping of the feet is a physical thing. Jesus' feet were touched. They were clasped. They grabbed hold of his feet. They saw him and they touched him. They knew that it was real. This wasn't just some figment of their imagination appearing to them. It wasn't just what they wished for. They touched, they clasped his feet. Why his feet? Because when they saw him, they fell down in worship, and the feet was the closest thing that they could grab. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that he is Lord, and as Lord, the only proper response is worship. Submitting to him in adoration and in obedience. And that's exactly what these women do. And in verse 10, Jesus repeats the instruction given by the angel. But he has a lovely little difference in his instruction. Notice what he calls the disciples in verse 10. It's lovely. He calls them brothers. And that's lovely because these disciples had just failed him. Even at this moment, they're nowhere to be seen because they've run away. And here he is telling these women to go and tell my brothers. My brothers. Not those idiots. Not those total failures 
who I want nothing else to do with. No, no. Go and tell my brothers that I'm alive. How lovely to know that Jesus, the risen Lord and King of the universe, calls failures like us his brothers. Isn't that lovely? Well, Matthew here provides us with evidence that grounds our faith in reality. The tomb was empty, Jesus was seen, and Jesus was touched. And the women give testimony here, but also there is evidence both inside and outside of the Bible that these events really did happen. All of the apostles and many other Christians, even today, are being killed, and the apostles were killed mostly, for their belief that this really happened. It's just not credible to believe that they were all making this up. The Apostle John writes about Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That was the Apostle John. He saw Jesus too. He touched him. And it should give us great confidence to live for Jesus as we look here again at the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you lost your sense of awe? Are you holding back from giving Jesus your all? Are you being lazy in your Christian life and just plodding along? Let's be like these women here and just worship him. Let's give everything for him because he has risen from the dead. He has gone ahead of you. You will see him. So Matthew shows us here what the true witnesses saw, but the truth of the resurrection is in all ages through history under attack. Because the resurrection does change history and does mean that Jesus is Lord of all and does demand worship, of the worship of each individual one of us, then people do not always want it to be true because they don't want to worship Jesus. They want to worship themselves or whatever else. And throughout history, we have heard what Matthew shows us in verses 11 to 15, what the false witnesses said. In verse 11, there is an interesting uh, word uh, in the Greek that is repeated in verses 8, 10, and 11 of our passage. The Greek word is apelangelo, which means to bring a news or a report and we see it in verses 8 and 10 with the English word tell, and verse 11 with the English word report. So tell and report are translated from the same Greek word. And I mention this because this means that both the women and the guards bring effectively the same apple angelo, or the same news, the same report, the same message. The women run off to tell the disciples what they have seen, and the guards run off to tell the chief priests what they have seen. 
the chief priests who had arranged for them to be guarding the tomb. And they tell the chief priests in verse 11, notice this, everything that had happened. That the women would go and tell everything that they saw, the chief priests would tell everything they saw, and most of it was the same. The, chief priest, uh, the, the guards wouldn't have had the appearance of Jesus, but they would have seen the earthquake, the angel, and the empty tomb. And this is exactly what the religious leaders feared. This is exactly what they had arranged at the end of chapter 27 to make sure uh, the tomb was as secure as they were able to make it for this very reason that it might be empty. It is interesting to note, though, that they never, not once, deny the tomb was empty. They never deny it. If they could produce a body, they would certainly have done so. That would have ended any claim of a resurrection, wouldn't it? But they couldn't produce a body because the body wasn't there. And so instead, they devise a plan to counter the claims of resurrection. And ironically, their plan is to claim the body was stolen. Why is that so funny? Because that was exactly what their scheme to secure the tomb was designed to prevent. It's like they could have come up with any scheme they wanted. They came up with the one scheme they tried to stop happening at the end of uh, chapter 27. And we read in verses 12 to 14 that they bribed the soldiers to say that the body was stolen while the soldiers were asleep. Now, it must have been some bribe to admit this. Because falling asleep on the job was actually an executionable offense. And they would have to admit to being pretty rubbish soldiers or extremely deep sleepers for this to have happened. But the religious leaders promised in verse 14 to keep them out of trouble if news ever reached the governor Pilate. But this plan isn't a great one, really. It doesn't take a world-class lawyer to poke holes in it. If the soldiers were asleep, how could they prove the body was stolen? They would have been asleep. They couldn't see anything. But nevertheless, the story persisted, Matthew writes, until this very day. When Matthew was writing his gospel, this story was going around. Versions of it survive in documents from the early church. A famous debate between a Christian called Justin and a Jew called Trypho contains an argument about this just a hundred years later than these events happened. But the story of a stolen body just does not hold water. The guards at the tomb would likely be woken by the stone being rolled away. But although also the disciples of Jesus, they suffered deprivation and death later on for their claims that Jesus was really alive. Surely they would not all have gone through all that they did and suffer in horrific ways if they had known really that they'd stolen the body. It just doesn't stack up. The stolen body theory was one of many stories you will hear from many people who claim that Jesus didn't rise. Other people claim that he didn't really die on the cross, but he seemed dead until in the tomb he resuscitated. This is known as the swoon theory. 
But if Jesus resuscitated in the tomb, how would he get the stone rolled away? And if he'd have managed that, how did he get past the guards who were outside the tomb? And how would this theory account for the fact that the Romans were experts in execution? Some people claim that Jesus was placed in a different tomb than the one that was empty. But Jesus was seen being placed in the tomb. And if the enemies of Jesus knew he was in a different tomb, they would have gone and pulled the body out and showed it to everybody to prove that he hadn't been raised. There is ample evidence to show us that Jesus really did rise from the dead. In fact, there are no theories that really stack up at all, except the fact that it really happened. But it is important to understand that as we share our faith, that when people say they don't believe because of a lack of evidence, it is not a lack of evidence that really is their major problem. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, uh, there's not enough evidence, or they try and poke holes in it with their theories. But even when we respond with the truth, it never is enough for them. Because the religious leaders knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. They just could not accept the consequences of it. It would be so world-transforming, it would be so humbling for them, that they chose rather to try and cover it up than bow the knee to Jesus. And their problem, as is the problem with all of us, is that we need to have a changed heart. A heart that enables us to see that these things are not just historically true, but that they demand the response of worship. Recognizing that Jesus is risen and responding with worship is the most important decision we will ever make in our whole lives. In the book of Acts, we read this. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. One day, each one of us will stand before Jesus. He has gone ahead of us. And for some of us, that is a day of great excitement. I am looking forward to seeing my Savior face to face because I know that he has died for my sins and there is forgiveness and the resurrection proves that that is the case. There's so much for God's people to look forward to because Christ is risen. But for many, this day is a day of dread as they face Jesus as judge. Don't let that be you. May it be a day that you look forward to because he's your saviour. May Matthew's account here give us confidence. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the fact that Christ is risen. And then every day give ourselves that day to worshipping him. Knowing that it is worth it. But more importantly, knowing that he is worthy of all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all that we have. Let us not doubt. Let us look at the risen Jesus and give our all for him. Well, before we come to the Lord's table, uh, we're going to respond uh, with the words of the song, 
Uh, he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. to defeat death, Jesus had to go through death himself. And after hearing about the resurrection, it's wonderful that we can uh, take the time to come around the Lord's table and take the bread and take the cup and confess to God, to ourselves and to one another uh, that we believe that he has died for our sins and has done all that is needed to save us. And in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But before we come to the supper, let's just take a moment to pray quietly where we are uh, before we come to take the bread and the cup. So let's just spend some moments in silent prayer and then I'll pray uh, and then we'll come to the table together. Heavenly Father, we have thought tonight about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, but we do not forget that he was dead and died for our sins on the cross to pay for all of the sins of all of your people. And we thank you for this marvelous gift of love. We pray for the forgiveness of sins based on that gift, 
on that sacrifice of atonement. And we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins that it brings us. And we trust in you for salvation. As we take this bread and we take this cup, we are reminding ourselves again, because we need this reminder, Lord, that you have died for our sins. And together we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this meal is for those who have asked God for forgiveness of sins based on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. And for those who are walking in obedience to him, if that's not you, well then please let the bread and the cup just pass you by. Uh, But I do encourage you to watch what is going on because the meal uh, represents what Christ has done. The bread represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, a body given for us, dying in our place for our sins. So I invite the servers to come uh, and, uh, and serve us the bread. And if as we take uh, the bread or the bread is given to us, uh, if we can hold on to it, uh, we will eat the bread together as we remember the body of our Lord Jesus.
When Jesus said, eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Well, the cup represents the blood of our Lord Jesus shed as a seal of the new covenant, the promise of forgiveness of sins because of his sacrifice. So as with the bread, uh, as the cup is distributed, let's hold on to our cups and let's drink of the cup together as one body in Christ.
from Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Well, the death and the resurrection of Jesus uh, are tied together. Can't have one uh, without the other. Both are absolutely necessary for our salvation. And we've seen uh, through Matthew's gospel that Jesus has died for our sins. He was buried. And tonight we've seen that he has conquered death. He has risen indeed. And our final hymn uh, celebrates the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, well, we're going to sing "Thine be the glory." So why don't we stand together uh, for this hymn, "Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son." Thanks be to God. 
He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay.